Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American idea. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, Wednesday evening, August 18th, about to record our 35th episode. What are we talking about this week? Well, the news has not been great lately, Ricky. And so uh, unfortunately, we're going we're gonna to spend the episode diving into the situation in Afghanistan. Um, we're going to try to go back and look at, you know, our, our our invasion of Afghanistan back from 2001, the failures of, of nation building, which we may have known for a long time, but have certainly been laid bare over the last week and uh, you know, try to have a, a good discussion about you know, what could we have done differently, if, if anything. And we're going to be joined for that conversation by our good friend, Colin Murphy. Um, well, Colin uh, was served in, in the Marines uh, from 2011, 2015. He, he deployed over to Afghanistan in 2013, 2014. So, uh, he's going to give us his perspective on everything that happens. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a really good conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. For sure. Um, before we get into that conversation, uh, as always, this will probably be like the most lighthearted part of the episode, which is nice. Uh, we'll let him remind you that the, the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Uh, that's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram. As always, you can check out us out on Instagram too, uh, or you can find them online at cannonhillwood.com. Uh, Cannon Hill wants to remind you that democracy has a lot to do with wood because the most popular candidate will win in the end. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully my pronunciation, people, people will get that. But I, I figured uh, a democracy line would be appropriate given the absolute failure of the democracy we tried to set up in Afghanistan this week. Uh, so without further ado, let's get into the interview with Colin Murphy. All right. All right, so we now welcome on Colin Murphy. Uh, Colin went to high school with both Ricky and I. He went to Trinity College with me uh, before serving as a first lieutenant, now captain in the Marine Corps from on active duty from 2011 to 2015. Uh, he deployed to Afghanistan uh, from 2013 into 2014 um, before coming back home um, in, at Boston College and is now living that civilian life more or less uh, like the rest of us. But we wanted to have him on to get his perspective on everything that has happened over the last week, but also just kind of reflecting on, on his time in Afghanistan and, and really like the, the past 20 years. Uh, Ricky and I have, have plenty of thoughts, but we're really excited um, to hear Colin's perspective. So uh, Colin, thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on and I uh, look forward to an interesting conversation. For sure. All right. So I guess my first question is, we haven't talked too much. We've texted a little bit in the last week, but everything happened so quickly. And I, I think it's been tough for all of us to watch some of the scenes that, you know, have been going on in Afghanistan and Kabul over the, over the past few days. But 
Uh, I know it's been particularly tough on um, former service people that, that have, you know, particularly the ones that served in Afghanistan. So like, how, how are you doing? How, how has it been over the last few, few days, over the last week to see everything that's happened? Yeah, it, I mean, I, I don't think anyone who uh, has been a part of the machine that is the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense uh, is overly surprised, uh, either if they serve now or they served you know, 50 years ago. Uh, but it is just, it's heartbreaking. Uh, it's heartbreaking for those that uh, we made promises to that we're not fulfilling. It's, it's heartbreaking for those that, you know, sacrificed so much, uh, not myself included. I fortunately, you know, didn't leave with any uh, real or, or, or invisible scars uh, to speak of. Um, and it's, it's heartbreaking for the future of our country because I think uh, our ability to uh, make the world a better place has been severely uh, degraded as a result of what's occurred over the last over the last week and over the last few years, really. Uh, so it's just been a it's been a heartbreaking week or so. Yeah, for for sure. Uh, so we want to come back to the to the events of this week, but we want to build up to that by by really going back and tracing the history as much as we can. Uh, so as probably everyone listening to this knows, uh, after the the terrorist attacks of September 11th. You know, there's the war on terror. Uh, it was an unprecedented war at the time because we didn't necessarily know who, who we were fighting. Uh, Osama bin Laden was was the guy, but there were questions. There were lots of questions for years, of course, of like where he was, right? And so um, we we enter into Afghanistan in 2001. Um, President Bush declares the war in Afghanistan. Uh, goal at the time, the Taliban was in charge of Afghanistan back in 2001. We knew they, they were a pretty brutal, uh, horrific regime uh, and that they had allowed terrorist activities within the borders of Afghanistan. And so that, that was one of the, you know, the main reasons that we were going there. But Colin, I'd be curious to hear your perspective on, on you know, kind of looking back on it or from your time in, in the military. I was like, you know, what, what, was the, what was the original purpose of, of going there? Was it to get rid of Osama bin Laden, to find Osama bin Laden? Was it to get rid of the Taliban? Was it both of those things? Like, I think this is one of the, the difficulties of the war on terror from the start, where it was like the, the goals that were like really amorphous. And it was when it's hard to pinpoint an objective, it's hard to know when you succeeded in an objective. So like, I'm curious to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. And, and from my perspective and my understanding, uh, it was and and I'm somebody that was very, my family was very affected by this, by this was as my my mother's uh, brother and my one of my uncles um, was on Flight 11 that flew into the World Trade Center tower and was killed on 9-11. And after that occurred and about 3,000 Americans lost their lives on 9-11, uh, our government went to the Taliban government, which was the recognized government of Afghanistan, and said, hand over OBL, Osama bin Laden. And they said no. Um, and it, they were providing or allowing for the Al-Qaeda network, uh, as well as other terrorist networks to operate unimpeded uh, in their lands. And uh, it wasn't the first time that Al-Qaeda had attacked the West. Uh, it was just another attack. It was their most effective year to date at the time. And uh, the decision was made that we cannot allow uh, unimpeded terrorist networks to, to train and operate and attack the West. So hand them over. When they said no, uh, the decision was made to overthrow that government. Uh, and so that was the the, the driving force or the main reason, at least as far as I understand, into going to Afghanistan the first time. So we get, we get into Afghanistan and while, you know, the fighting is, is fierce, 
you know, relatively speaking, the United States is pretty successful about driving the Taliban from power. And while Afghanistan is uh, a large country with like a, a lot of, um, you know, unsettled or mountainous terrain and, and regions. And so there was like ongoing fighting to try to like root out all of the, the terrorist cells that were there. But then it, you know, Osama bin Laden is, is not found. Uh, and then it becomes this kind of exercise in nation building. And, and we're there. And if, if the goal was to drive out the Taliban, if the goal was to disrupt Al-Qaeda and other terrorist cells that were operating in Afghanistan, the United States does a pretty effective job pretty quickly, re- relatively speaking. So, so then it becomes like post-2003, say, like, or even like before we get into the war in Iraq, how does that change? Like from your perspective, you know, like if, if the goal was to do those things and we did those things, then we're, I guess the, the Bush administration is kind of left looking like, well, we don't have our guy yet. And now we've, we've driven this, the, the government from power in Afghanistan, but what next? Yeah. And uh, I think uh, it, it was exactly that. We, 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 we overthrew the government. We said that the Taliban are not, uh, are not, allowed to rule Afghanistan anymore. So we need to set up some sort of interim government before uh, having, you know, the, before bringing democracy to Afghanistan, which yeah. you know, is probably a faulty premise um, to begin with. But what actually had, had occurred is that uh, we got together a bunch of the leaders of the country and they had a vote on an interim president. And we had our guy who ended up serving as president until the most recent uh, president, Hamid Karzai, and we wanted him to be president. Uh, the Afghan warlords all wanted the former king, who I think was in his 70s at the time. And we actually had to, and so this is where I think we began going wrong, where we were saying we want democracy, uh, but we want democracy as long as you pick our guy, um, which, you know, that is not democracy. <laughs> that is something completely different. Uh, and so we wanted Karzai. Uh, and so we actually got the former king, uh, who I think he was a king from like the 30s to the 70s. And he was a very a much older gentleman at the time. He passed away, I think, in the late 2000s, single digits. I don't know. What do we call the 2000s now? The 2000s. Um, but we, we got him to say he wasn't going to run, and at which point Karzai got the, got the, got the nod. But uh, I think it was we got into nation building because we took away the government, and there needed to be something there. And we wanted to have it be uh, – have an Afghan face on it and be self – you know, at least have the image that it was they were choosing their own government, but the government they were going to choose was a government we didn't want. So we started a meddle there, and then the meddling just grew and grew and grew from there. What do you think this sort of stems from? I mean, it feels like a bit of, uh, and obviously it's going to be an oversimplification, but like this overconfidence. You know, Afghanistan is not really the first place that we tried that we've tried this. Where do you think that this stems from? And were there lessons that we should have learned in previous conflicts that we just didn't apply here? Absolutely. I think it's hubris. I think it's uh, you look at the gadgets we have and the technological advancements and how highly we think of our vision of the world and how we set up our government. And we think we have uh, the solutions to everything, which uh, I think if you're on social media now, it's shocking how many uh, epidemiologists who like, look at disease, how many experts we had around COVID. And now this week we have so many experts on foreign policy, which is funny to see how, how, how confident the American people are on, on what they think is, uh, is the correct solution. And so I think it was more than anything that 
we, we have all the answers. And so we're going to, we're going to share our wisdom with the world. And it was just this hubris that was completely misplaced. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting that that point you made, and I kind of alluded to it too, where it's like, you know, the goals that the Bush administration had going in were one, like wildly popular, both, both amongst like the American populace, but also the American elected officials, right? Like the, the war in Afghanistan was like voted overwhelmingly. Uh, I think there was only one, one vote against it. Um, yeah, at least in the house. Uh, but there was no like follow-up plan. I, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, like Charlie Wilson's war. Did anybody, yeah. anybody see the movie? Yeah, it's a great movie. It really is a great movie, like sneaky Tom Hanks movie, Julia Roberts movie. You should go see I that love, movie. I love my Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, yeah, it's a great ca- all-time character actor. Uh, but like that, that deals with you know this is not the first time the United States was involved in Afghanistan, right? The United States was involved in Afghanistan in the late seventies. Decided after after kind of stopping the Soviet invasion and arming what turned into the Taliban uh, to fight off the Soviets. Then all of a sudden the Taliban takes over with all of the weapons that the United States provided them and provides us like you know, oppressive regime that we, we already alluded to. So this was just like, Ricky, like you were kind of saying this too, like it's not only these like mistakes from the the faraway past that we refuse to learn from or in, like in a different place that we might think, oh, that was just Vietnam or like that was just in El Salvador. Like we were in Afghanistan 20 years before this and pretty much saw the same things happen. So like, we're going to talk about this throughout this interview and throughout this episode of the failures of really all of the administrations, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, the Biden administration, like there's, there's plenty of blame to go around here. But I guess like my question for you, Colin, is what, like, what would, I don't even know that there is a right answer here, right? Like the Bush administration goes in, disrupts the terrorist cells. Great. Gets rid of the Taliban. Great. Obviously this failure begins right here, this next step, but like, I don't know that there was a correct right step here. Yeah. Well, I mean, Afghanistan is called the graveyard of empires for a reason, starting with Alexander the Great and then the British Empire when they had the colony in, in India and, and dealing with Afghanistan as a result and then into the Soviets and to us. So this was established that foreign powers do not do well in Afghanistan. And and I, I, I should say that, you know, everything I say is, you know, these these are Colin Murphy's views. These aren't the Marine Corps views. <laughs> so I do want to be clear on that. Um, but uh, what what was was most what was most telling to me really was that we had we would have patrols go out into like the hills of the Hindu Kush and on patrol and they would see literally Soviet tanks and Soviet bunkers in the, in the mountaintops and you know we were very much like this was the first time there but the you know the local villagers and the local nationals who live there this is just their way of life and any nation going into Afghanistan has to overcome this this image of of, of being a foreign invader and we were often looked at as foreign invaders. You, a lot of what we did was trying to build, you know, infrastructure and give opportunities to to women and girls and to do a lot of noteworthy things. But there, no matter what we did, there was always going to be this this feeling that we were foreign invaders and that the government that we supported was our puppet government, just as the, the Soviets had a puppet government, as the yeah. as the British did. And the fact that we weren't able to acknowledge that. And from the very start, we were meddling in, you know, I don't want to say the free will of the Afghan people, but their, their decision on who they wanted to lead them made it that we were not even trying to counter this idea that we were just setting up a, a puppet government. And so I think from the very start, you know, we didn't necessarily have a plan, but we also were completely ignoring the implications of, of selecting who should be leading Afghanistan um, from the very start. 
Yeah, that's, I, I mean, that's, that's such an, like, a important observation that it feels like when we went in there, it was like, all right, well, we're, everybody wants the American dream and we're going to bring it to Afghanistan. And once they get a taste of it, like it's, they're going to love us and they will love <laughs> what we're doing over there. It feels like there's obviously that element of it. And then, you know, what Kelly was saying that we could go there and obviously overwhelm them militarily, but defeating them or like destroying them is a very different sort of animal we could scatter them to the hills right which is essentially where they hid out and just waited us out for 20 years that's what it feels like and and the big thing is saying is this you know we often you know i think we all fall victim as americans of seeing things in black and white and in afghanistan everything is different shades of gray and so the taliban actually means brother or or i believe and the taliban is a you know a movement that there are many different sects and, and parts of the Taliban, and there isn't any sort of necessarily there. There is central directive from uh, from their leadership, but it is there are it is so widespread and means so many different things to so many people who are involved in that network that it is very hard to cast with a broad brush. And so when we try to say we understand the Taliban, you don't understand them because there's not one solution or one answer across the, that applies across the board. And so the, 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 in Afghanistan, about 40 to 40 to 50% of the population is Pashtun. And, you know, the government we set up was heavily Pashtun. Um, but Afghanistan is, it's a, it's a, you know, a bunch of tribes. I think it was like a dozen to 14 tribes or something in Afghanistan. And they all, we, we go in and we try to set up a very centralized government based out of Kabul and that just does isn't how Afghanistan is operated. It, it's it's very much run at the local level, and um, you know we can get a little bit more into the government and how they actually set up. But they ultimately set up their Afghan National Army, the ANA, and the Afghan National Police, the ANP, and the the army was all from the from the capital. And so you had members of the army going to areas that they were no more home to them than you know Missouri would be to them, and that they didn't know the local populace. And so a lot of the atrocities that were committed against the local population was because we were taking people out of the villages and the towns that they grew up in and putting them in a, essentially a foreign land. And so the, the, just the disconnect between trying to set up this, you know, this Western solution to government to a situation that didn't apply was really where I think things started to go, go awry early on. That's such an important uh, thing that I feel like is, is, not talked about at all just the the idea that the taliban is this one entity that they're like just solely a terrorist organization and you know kelly rightly brought up some of the horrific things that they were doing in the 90s and it's definitely something that is important to recognize but at the same time it's it's almost like something similar to what we see here like people talk about oh if the democrats come into power they're going to do all these things well we we see you know, you have your Joe Manchin Democrats and you have your AOC Democrats and they're very different types of people. I'm not trying to draw a comparison between the Democrats and the Taliban. The Democrats are Taliban, you're saying? <laughs> Great comparison, Ricky. <laughs> but like the idea that there wouldn't be a variety of views amongst another group of people, like not understanding that, that they're also going to have disagreements and different ways that they want to push forward their government um, is something that I feel like that we that we miss here 
in the headlines of like, you know, what, what's happening and what's about to transpire. So maybe one of the questions I have, you know, following up on, on what you said there is, you know, where do you see the direction of Afghanistan going and kind of, you know, we've always had the stance that the U.S. doesn't negotiate with terrorists, but how do you see those like U.S. Taliban relations kind of going forward from here? Yeah, so the, I mean, things look pretty bleak now, but they can get so much more bleak if the Taliban are able to fight off kind of the extremist voices within their organization and set up a stable, legitimate government that is actually closer to what we were trying to establish and do it quicker than we were able to. Like, we think we have egg on the face as Americans right now, just, just, like, hopefully that happens, I guess, because it's best for the Afghani people. But wouldn't that make us look awful? Um, and there were parts of, so when I was in Helmand province, and Helmand is uh, in southwestern Afghanistan, just on the border of, of Pakistan. And, and that's important because a lot of the Taliban fighters come from Pakistan. And a lot of their leadership is in Pakistan. And Helmand province is the heavy uh, heroin or poppy uh, province in Afghanistan. And Something like 90% of the world's heroin comes from Afghanistan. And so uh, Helmand is a really core or key uh, province for, for the Taliban. Uh, and, you know, where the Taliban was, um, uh, began was in Kandahar, which is just to the, to the east of Helmand province. So th- those are really two key areas for the Taliban. Um, and we had areas of Helmand province where the Taliban was we're probably the good guys and the Afghan national army, Afghan national police, the local government, we're the bad guys. The, the Taliban, they abide by Sharia law, which is a really, really, um, you know, some would say barbaric form of uh, interpretation of Islam. Um, but, you know, it is consistent. There are clear boundaries. There are clear rules. There are clear, this is what is right. And this is what is wrong. What, where we often lost a lot of the local nationals was when, they would choose the barbarism of Taliban over the inconsistency and the corruption of the Afghan National Army, Afghan National Police, the, the Kabul government. And, you know, people want to understand what the expectations are and what are their operating limits. And the general corruption in Afghanistan is really, and that we were seeing complicit in that, in that corruption is really where we lost the confidence of the people. So to get back to your question on what do I see the future, it really comes down on, on who wins within the internal power struggle that I'm sure is occurring within the Taliban network. You have the sect of uh, the Haqqani network, which is a, basically a family sect of it. And they're huge in the drug trade. They're really bad mamma jammas um, that uh, they were their own standalone entity. And they allied to the Taliban back, I think in the either the nineties or early two thousands, but they are much more extremists than, than you run the mill Taliban. So if they have the, the most preeminent voice in the Taliban, we can expect really, you know, mid, mid, medieval type behaviors of, of amputations and women having to wear, you know, burqa and, and being locked away in their home under the protection of the, the men in their family. Uh, if some of the more moderate voices went out, we could see, you know, people are, there is this, this fatigue in Afghanistan. So I think that's why we've seen minimal resistance to the Taliban takeover because there's just, there's, there's battle fatigue and people just want some stability, even if it's a stability that comes with the less than ideal, you know, human rights. So to go back to like the nation building, you made a, a lot of really good points. Like the United States clearly failed for all, all of the reasons and many more that, you know, you've said and that we haven't been able to touch on. Uh, but the Afghan government failed too. And so like how much, 
where, where I mean, not that we're like assorting the the blame here, but you know, how much does the United States have to look at itself and say like, wow, we handled that really poorly and we should have done a million things better. And if we had done things differently, we could have, you know, we could have changed the fortune of there. And that might be true or not versus how much is it kind of like, like if the Afghan people can't set up, if they can't run their own government, if, if they can't set up their uh, a national police force and a national army at, at this point, like, is that kind of on them? Like if, is like, I'm kind of, yeah, that's my question. Yeah, I think, you know, from my perspective, it's, you know, we, we knew, we knew this, it's the graveyard of empires. And we go in there and we say, we're going to, you know, completely overhaul the way that they self-organize and that they run their, their government. And we bit off way more than we ever should have. And it wasn't the, I think one of the, one of the hardest things that I had to grapple with when going over there is, uh, you know, we were spinning up to go on deployment and we had about three month workup and I was trying to figure out everything I would need to know about the, the areas that I was going to. And, you know, that villager who's 30 years old, they know every, they, they've had interacted with Americans for the last, this was 2013 for the last 12 years. They interacted with Soviets before that, you know, they've had this long experience and we're going there for six months and we're assuming we have a clean slate and we don't have a clean slate. Uh, and we should have known that going in that there are going to be, uh, perceptions of, of, of foreign invaders, but also perceptions of us that are going to be very hard to overcome from when we overthrew the government and we took some missteps along the way. And then we try to say, you know, give us a clean start. And we were just looked at with a lot of apprehension, uh, I think, understandably. And, you know, when we were trying to, you know, convince uh, local nationals to trust us and, you know, uh, tell us where, uh, where this where this Taliban leader is, they know that eventually we were going to leave, and we probably were going to leave and abandon them. And what do we end up doing? We we end up abandoning them, and so that's where you see a lot of the really gut wrenching stories of a lot of the interpreters who were with us, and we basically promised them that we would take care of them, and like made direct promises that if you help us, because we are so reliant on you, we will take care of you and your family, and that's where you see a lot of the, the outrage right now, because how can we ever expect to like, take Taiwan, for instance, or, or another part of the world that say there is something that occurs that we have to go into that country? How is any foreign nation ever going to trust us again when we reneged on our promises in Afghanistan? Yeah, I, I want to come back to like the disaster of the pullout shortly. But uh, so you, it's interesting, like thinking as, as you're speaking here, you know, was this just a sunk cost for 18 years? Like the United States has spent $2 trillion, has unfortunately lost several thousand lives of United States uh, military members, contractors, and tens of thousands of Afghani uh, military members, and unfortunately close to hundreds of thousands of, of Afghan civilians. And it, are we pretty much saying at this point, like, look, it's been a sunk cost for 18 years, and we know that the Bush administration wasn't straight up in how they conducted the wars. We know, actually, just in the last few weeks, the Washington Post did a great expose about how the Obama administration buried the, like this intelligence for years. Like, Is this something that pretty much we've known at the highest levels, and it's just Vietnam on a bigger scale? Yeah, the, like watching, watching what is it, the, uh, is it, is it the Post or the, the Pentagon Papers about Vietnam? The, the parallels, anybody who's been in Afghanistan knows what, like that we are making strides forward. That was always what we were saying. We're moving the ball, moving the ball downfield, that it was all BS essentially that as soon as we no longer provide support, that things were going to crumble. And a lot of that was the support that we were providing. We 
we're trying to set up a 21st century military in a part of the world that doesn't necessarily require it. Um, and so really we can get into why things collapse more, but we were setting up a, a military that was relying on you know, aircraft and artillery, but for that aircraft and artillery to operate, it required, you know, the, it still required Western contractors to, to service it and to, to um, take care of any, you know, breakdowns in the, in the in mechanization. And there were oftentimes, you know, series of weapon systems at forward operating bases on the ANA side that weren't being used because of, you know, they just needed about a half hour of mechanic to address, but they didn't have that expertise built in, so they couldn't do it. And so we, we just really had misdirected or misguided judgments. And, and so when it was part like gaslighting the American, the American public and saying that things are getting better, but it was also they were always going to be relying on us. And so I don't, I wouldn't say it was a sunk cost because if I believe if we had stayed at, you know, a couple thousand presence and also most importantly, probably that contractor presence to keep the weapons alive and also show that we were still committed to the effort, things would have gone different over the last few weeks because they wouldn't know that we were still committed. Um, and I, I attended a very interesting speech when I, I was stationed stateside on, on, uh, on Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. And a general, I, f- I forget now who the general was, but was talking about basically answering this question and said, um, by being forward deployed, you're not, you know, this isn't pointless, this isn't a wasted effort. But what you are doing is being that tip of the spear that there are people who want death to America and they want to hurt Americans. They want to hurt our way of life. And they did that on 9-11 by coming to our country and flying four planes, three into, into landmarks in our country and one that was, was crashed in a, in a field in Pennsylvania. But by being in their country, they were fighting us there rather than fighting our, our civilians here. And there's a, there's a good example that he used on the, the Breslon uh, school siege in, in Russia which is the worst, called the worst school shooting in history. And that was done by Chechen uh, revolutionaries. But there are a lot of members of the Taliban network and the Al-Qaeda network that say the history of the U.S. and Afghanistan is going to be the history of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. Uh, and what they did, basically, they went into a school and killed a couple hundred uh, Russian children. Um, and it was a very horrible thing. But by being forward deployed, those that want to hurt our way of life had that adversary, that target there. My fear now is that we, if removing that, we still have a lot of enemies there and we've made a lot of enemies, people who probably are very justified in hating us. And if they want revenge, now their way of getting revenge is no longer attacking those soldiers, those Marines that signed up to, to put themselves in harm's way, but rather try to come to our nation. Uh, fortunately, we have very secure borders, so it will never be an issue. Um, but it was to come to our nation and, and hurt us on our own turf. Uh, and so is that enough to justify the billions and billions of dollars and the loss of life just to be a forward, you know, shooting dummy? Um, it, it, obviously, that's not what I intend to say, but, you know, that's for your own opinion. But I think there's something to be said that there haven't been any foreign terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. Uh, there's been homegrown terrorism, but no foreign entities coming in and conducting terrorist attacks since 9-11. Well, there's so much to unpack in uh, in what you in what you just covered there. Um, I guess I wanted to touch on a few things. I think, you know, one of the the sort of the promise after 9-11 was that we were going to go kind of bring the fight to the terrorist doorstep. And, and, and like Kelly said, and like we saw 
through the Senate votes and um, in Congress as well, there was a lot of support for that. Um, but also what you sort of mentioned is that, you know, how we were setting up the the Afghan National Police and the army to fight the, the Taliban in Afghanistan was totally misguided. So one of the things I'm curious about because of how you know, clearly you saw the situation from being there on the ground. It's how much of that disconnect was between soldiers that were actually there fighting and kind of the top down direction of the military. And then on that, I think Kelly and I have talked about this a little bit before, is that, you know, the the military industrial complex in, in the U.S. to continue to pump money into our, you know, defense systems, but Part of that, of course, is going to, to setting up, uh, you know, an air force in Afghanistan. Like how much of that is potentially also influencing how we think about addressing these conflicts? Yeah, and uh, I think the military industrial complex, that's, that's going to take the biggest beating in the years to come to see that these decisions weren't made because of responses on the ground, but rather because we got, you know, a senator wanted a contract for their district and they won that contract and we were going to give this through hell or high water, whether or not it was needed. And uh, on Camp Leatherneck in Afghanistan, we had a, I think it was like a hundred million dollar facility that was built that was supposed to be the command operating center, COC, and it was never utilized. And the general at the time didn't want it. And it was, it ended up being used just for people coming back for patrol to sleep in a uh, hundred million dollars completely wasted. And then the amount of waste you saw over there was, was astronomical, but you know, we had our part to play, but even within the Afghan side, the Af- we had instances where the Afghan national army and Afghan national police were, were fighting each other and fighting each other, not for, not for good reason, but for very selfish reasons. Um, and so we were oftentimes supporting people that we thought, you know, they may not be the ideal ally, but they're better than the alternative. And I think whenever you start to sacrifice your own morals, because it's, you know, the enemy we know is better than we, the one that we don't, or whatever justification you have, you start to get into a, a moral slippery, slippery slope. And, you know, there were instances, and you can read a lot about, you know, uh, pedophilia in Afghanistan, especially among the ANA and ANP. And that is one of the things that drove a lot of people to the Taliban, that there is this custom in Afghanistan, especially in the more tribal and rural areas of having uh, tea boys or chai boys um, that are basically the sexual object for older Afghan soldiers. Um, and there's a cultural uh, thing that has been around for millennia uh, that is really gross. And when, when U.S. servicemen have reported on it, and Afghan parents have come to our bases and say, can you please get my son back, who's 12 or 13, who's being basically raped by an Afghan commander, that U.S. servicemen were told to stand down uh, because we didn't want to interfere in their cultural institutions. And so we were willing to sacrifice our moral high ground in pursuit of some misguided sense of, of what, is, what is better than the alternative. Um, and so... It was really just on so many levels. It was just it's been a mess for so long, and I think this lens leads leads to well, we should just get out there and wash our hands of it. But uh, a lot of the reasons why we were there in the first place, which I think were were well founded and good to prevent the ability of terrorist organizations to project themselves forward onto the West uh, to, to provide human rights to 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 women uh, and to really to everyone across society, but in particular women and young girls, 
those reasons are still are very justified and still present, but uh, they're no longer uh, being considered as important as they as they were to justify why we were staying there in the first right. place. So yeah, let, let's talk about that because when Biden announced this back in April that he was going to kind of fulfill the promises that Obama made, that Trump made, and actually like bring home the the, the remaining United States troops, and you know he set this self-imposed deadline of September 11th, you know, it's obviously the significant 20 year anniversary of September, the September 11th attacks. Um, Ricky and I had an episode and we applauded that decision. Like both of us were kind of like, look at, look at the military industrial complex. We, we spent like, we, I noted earlier, trillions of dollars, tens of thousands of lives at this point, let's just bring it home. As you said, it, it's, it's, it's a mess. It's been a mess for, for 20 years. It, if we were there for 20 more years, it would still be a mess. Like, like the the hubris at that point to think that like hey these next two years these next twenty years are going to be different than the previous two years or twenty years I think would be unfounded and so why are we continuing to pour money and lives into this aside from a military industrial complex or this refusal to acknowledge that we failed or we messed up here and so like I, I think our our first reactions honestly and Ricky I don't want to speak for you here but like good finally you know like this is what we've been waiting for and now. Obviously, given everything that's happened in the last week, it's really easy to say that was a terrible decision. But so my question for you is, was it the wrong decision? What was it was pulling out the wrong decision in and of itself? Or was it just botched horribly in operation, which has led to the chaos of the last week? I think uh, everything can be true there. Uh, I think the, the dumbest thing ever was saying we're going to be out by 9-11, like so you're turning 9-11 into a day that the people that some of which were responsible for 9-11 are going to celebrate. Uh, the, and, and so I know uh, the Biden administration changed it to August 31st as a result, but that was really dumb to begin with. Um, you know, President, Obama, uh, President Biden and his cabinet got handed a, a really impossible situation. So you can admit that while also admitting the way that they conducted this pullout was atrocious. Uh, I think nothing is easier to see than, you know, I think it was on Friday night when it was announced that we were putting 2,500 troops back into Afghanistan just after we had pulled out 3,000 Marines. So, so you pull and, and the process to get, you know, a, a, a United States service member over into Afghanistan, the amount of training and checking the boxes that you have to go through is astronomical and it's a logistic nightmare. It's not just getting a guy in a plane going over there. Um, as somebody has gone through it, it's weeks and weeks of build up. And it's, it's a huge headache. So why would you take some big people out and then just put the same amount back a week later? So you can admit both are right. But whether or not we should be there anymore, uh, what I would say is that we make promises and, and not promises to institutions, but promises to individuals. And we made promises on a global stage on a global stage that the U.S. is going to support you. The U.S. has your back, that America is going to stand by you. And then whether I mean, that's part of the issue of having. And, you know, a democracy where the cabinets change and, 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 you know, new governments come in is that, you know, our foreign allies don't really care if it's a new government. They care that they got a promise from America that we would stand by them. And then we didn't. So starting to look moving forward, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of looking at things through the sunk cost mentality. Uh, and if it no longer makes sense, you know, just just looking at it on the facts on the ground right now. Then, then act accordingly. But the fact of the matter is, we made promises to individuals and to institutions that we would, that we would tough it out with them. And then we broke, we broke our word. So moving forward, how can we ever ask anyone to trust America again? Yeah, I mean that's fair, and you can argue the same thing happened under the Trump administration when we pulled out of and left the Kurds to largely be slaughtered by by the Turkish government. 
right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the Kurds and the same thing, you know, you know, throughout throughout our history in Vietnam, and it's 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 going to be increasingly difficult. And now you're seeing these joint exercises between China and Russia, and and oftentimes after these cycles of heavy military involvement, the U.S. kind of goes into a retraction and doesn't want to project forward as much. And so now the world and you know people are celebrating this as you know extremism one, and the U.S. is no longer this ability, has the ability to project forward. Um, and so even if we wanted to. How are we ever going to get a foreign nation um, that is relying on us to, to trust us? And so I think that has to be, is that a reason enough to stay in Afghanistan? Uh, no, but also the, the um, kind of the, the rhetoric that we can't lose any more American lives as a result of this. The last life that was lost was February of 2000. So it's been you know 18 months since we lost an American life in Afghanistan. There weren't, you know, were we still involved in combat missions? Absolutely, predominantly in uh, in the air. Um, but it wasn't like we were still losing a lot of lives on a regular basis. Um, and and that's what's infuriating me more than anything is the continued gaslighting that I've seen from politicians after the fact. It's like we just established that, you know, a lot of the mistakes that have resulted in Afghanistan were a result of, you know, the powers that be lying to the American public. And then you have, you know, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, saying we're going to do everything we can to help Afghan women and girls. It's like, well, no, no, we aren't. We, we left Afghanistan. We're, we're not. We're not. If we want to do everything we could to help them, we would, we would stay there. You have General Milley saying there's nothing we could have done to prevent, you know, the situation at the airport. Uh, we definitely could do stuff. Like, you're just lying. And to see this continued gaslighting, it's like, Either they think we're dumb or not paying attention. And it's just, it's just shocking to me. And I, I don't know the solution because there's just no accountability of people saying things that just are factually incorrect. Yeah, it's, it's really depressing. And I mean, you, you drew it explicitly to like everything that we know happened in Vietnam, like that we didn't know happening at the time, but in hindsight was happening. And I mean, I think we've probably all seen the pictures of Saigon in 1975 and Kabul in 2021. And like those similarities are, are eerie. And some of those problems that we're talking about are problems that seem a little more intractable, right? It's not just the Vietnam problem. It's not just an Afghanistan problem. It's kind of like whether it's the military industrial complex, American problem or politicians lying to the people, like those sorts of problems, like that are, those are like the more we have to look as our, like our country ourselves in the mirror uh, on like a, maybe a broader and deeper level than just like beyond this, like one conflict. Yeah. And, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, uh, we were failing in Afghanistan, the government, we prompted up, you see all those pictures of like the Taliban and like the, the presidential gym and stuff and it's like laughable and you see like the compounds the amount of money we were dumping to a few core individuals you know they often what we were we were we were told uh, going through before going to afghanistan is that corruption is a part of the way of doing business in that part of the world and you just have to accept this level of corruption but when you see how destitute a lot of the population is and how lavish some of the those palatial estates were you know it is that what we were doing wasn't right and wasn't getting better. Uh, and so maybe the, you know, I, I do not think it will happen, but maybe the Taliban will able will be able to enact some sort of government that works for their culture. Uh, they do have a background of running the country. As you said, in 96, they took over and they ran it to 2001. And it was a very dark time from our perspective, but it is a different nation. And and one of the things that I, I just want, I want to make sure I mentioned is one of the, most 
difficult things about Afghanistan is, you know, I had a Marine who worked for me and he was uh, working on a company level intelligence cell. So it was really down in the weeds, interacting with villagers. And he was once spoke to a villager who said that uh, 9-11 was a response to the American invasion of Afghanistan. So his his whole version of the timeline of events was off. But when you don't have free access to information, you know, it's impossible to verify anything. That's what, you know, his, his father had told him or his village elder had told him. And that's how he perceived the world, that we had to attack the West because they invaded our country. And the lack of information in Afghanistan, you know, anything can be the truth because you don't have a way to verify it. And it's also a nation that is a warrior culture. Their whole, there's so few opportunities. The only way to really prove yourself as a man in a lot of these, in a lot of these rural areas is to go to war. And so even if you don't have necessarily that foreign enemy to project against, you know, think back to when we were, you know, teenagers, you want to kind of prove yourself. There is a lot of my, all I heard about growing up was my, my older brothers, my uncle, my father, my grandfather was fighting the invaders and people want that seminal experience. And so you, I don't think anyone, at least for generations, is going to be able to bring peace to Afghanistan because it's just, it's a part of their life. And when there's so few opportunities for advancement, people aren't going to be satisfied with just, you know, running a small farm. They want that moment that is that seminal moment in their, in their life. And it is really just, it's just a, a very tragic nation that there's a reason why it's the graveyard of empires because it's, you know, we go in with a very skewed understanding of how the world works and their, and their world is just a different world than the one that we're accustomed to. That's it. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's one of those things that like, I think this was like a really good conversation at the same time. It's like, there's no, there's no right answers. There's no like, oh, yeah, it's, de- it's depressing. It's just, yeah. yeah. But what's funny is seeing how many, how many people are just, you know, fully convinced they have all the answers and all the solutions and, and, and the, you know, people saying this is what, what we need to do. And it's like, what, are you a public policy expert who's been studying Afghanistan for 30 years? Cause you read books by those people and even they, you know, it's like the more, you know, the less, you know, it's like, you see those people are just like, I, I don't know what the solution here, but it's, it's probably not what we did. Um, and maybe one of the last things I'll say is the one of the, the biggest crocs ever I joined the Marine Corps in 2011. I, gr- I grew up through the, the coin doctrine era, the counterinsurgency, and you had every colonel and above publishing a book about counterinsurgency. This is how you do counterinsurgency in Iraq or Afghanistan. And, and people go on the talk, the, the speech lecture circuit and all this. And the fact that we, we thought we were the masters of coin <laughs> counterinsurgency. It's just it's just smelling your own farts at a certain point and thinking that we had all the answers when we had none of the answers. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you hope you hope like the next generation of leaders grows up and understands these things, but not to be depressing, but I'm sure they said the same thing after Vietnam and, you know, 45 years later, it's it's striking, you know, like the the phrase, you know, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it like it's. There's a reason it's it's cliche, but there's a reason that it exists, right? And this is you rarely get such a perfect mirror of, of what we've had, you know, over this past week. And, and the question I want to ask you too, because you know, I I, th- I feel like I'm pretty well educated on this, maybe less so on some other, um, you know, policy events. But I think this is a perfect example of why everybody should be a libertarian, uh, because you know, a lot of these generals are great individuals. They went to West Point, the Naval Academy. They rose through 
meritocracy through the ranks and they know war fighting in and out. And we couldn't have screwed up Iraq and Afghanistan probably more than we did. Um, yet we, the more social programs, no matter how good the intent is, government, I seeing government and seeing the waste of government, I have no faith in government institutions to get anything right. And so we, we want more and more bigger and bigger government. And I think the way that we conducted this, this war, these wars, and more importantly, recently, these, uh, the end of these wars illustrates how let's privatize everything because government cannot be trusted to do anything. And so do you think the person who is pushing, you know, education reform or a social program is more informed on that aspect of a social program than that general who spent their whole life just devoted to warfare? Probably not, because they've been doing a lot of different things. And oftentimes politicians, their greatest skill is getting elected, not actually being a being a genius. So now I'm personally a libertarian because I've seen a lot of government waste and I, I don't trust government to do anything effectively or efficiently. I can get on board with that take. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not to say there's not value in social programs, but let's let's give money to some private organizations and let them bid against each other to, to do it more effectively than the government ever could. Let the market, let the market rule. We just had that debate in the last episode. If people didn't listen to our neoliberalism episode, go listen to it. That's a great, that's a great transition. Yeah. And it's I mean, it's it's definitely a fair question. I don't know if we have full full amount of time to get into that debate but um yeah i just want to open a can of worms before it's, it's before, a big it's a big one it's a big one but <laughs> I, I i think i think that's you know at least sort of a libertarian view at foreign policy we can maybe start to to pick at here right because obviously you know you mentioned the repressive regime regime of the taliban of the 90s and that you know ostensibly or objectively what we were able to bring to women and girls over the last 20 years was important, but how much of these types of things do we actually have to let like nature take its, no, that's a terrible, I'm not going to say that, but do we have to let these things kind of evolve on their own? Because I, and this is, you're going to, you got to stay with me here because this is a potentially another terrible metaphor, <laughs> but you know, if you look at the U S uh, obviously pre-Civil War, but even in, in the 19, early 1900s, all the way through, let's say, call it all the way through the Civil Rights Act, right? Like somebody else objectively from outside could have been like, we're, we need to do something because there's a group of people who are being, who are objectively being deprived rights and opportunities in this country. And how like disastrous would that have been for us as a nation that was trying to figure itself out? Had we had somebody from another country who didn't know anything about us decide that they knew how to fix all of our problems and like how much, you know, as a, as a world power, do we have a responsibility to protect those who can't protect themselves? Yes. But also, you know, are we doing more harm than good in these situations? And I think, you know, the libertarian philosophy would be at some point we have to, we have to like worry about ourselves more. Yeah, no, but you know, there's a reason why if we call something a genocide, the U.S. says that they're the U.N. says they're going to act. Uh, if certain horrible things are happening, that as an international community, uh, maybe I think what you said lends itself to maybe we aren't an international community and everybody should worry about their own houses. Um, I like to think that if you see evil in the world, that there will be people who will step up and try to stop that evil. Um, but that's what we, you know. That's what we like to say we got into 9-11 uh, in the first place. But, you know, there was, you know, there were probably other motives at play as well. But then it's, you know, how do you 
how do you un unravel after stopping the evil and how do you in the in a in, if you create a power vacuum what is going to fill it uh, and that's when we started a snowball into nation building which asking a bunch of uh, grunts and, and and marines and soldiers to build a nation is probably outside their area of expertise but I, I don't think you know I think you know what what is what is the saying at Roxbury Latin those to whom much is given much is expected yeah, so I think as the U.S., much has been given to us, and if we see evil in the world, we're, we're, we have an obligation to do something. Does it get into a messy area of what, what's the next step after we stop that evil? Absolutely. I think that's what it's shown. Um, but maybe the answer is relying on more of an of a international coalition than the facade of an international coalition we often had in Afghanistan, where it was a bunch of Americans, a handful of Brits, and then representatives I will give a shout out to the Republic of Georgia. They they were some badass guys. I heard uh, they, Japan's handling stations. Uh, yeah, they're yeah, they're some bad guys. They're not bad guys. They're some badass guys. Some really um, good good fighters, warriors. Um, but yeah, I, I, again, I, I don't have a lot of answers. I just have a lot of sadness and uh, and things that uh, I constantly am thinking about of what what could have what could have gone differently and what could have gone better. Yeah. And I mean, those are the questions that we're going to have to be asking ourselves as a military, as a government, as a society. Now, hopefully, not only these next few weeks, but really next few months and years and trying to craft a foreign policy like that is Colin. I, I couldn't agree more with you that we should you know, try to go more about like the international community and coalition building. That's obviously easier said than done as well, like like as any of these things are. But I mean, to, to your point, like it's like the Ali Wiesel quote, right? Like, neutrality or silence is always on the side of the oppressor and the United States. <laughs> but you also get into like, does the United States know better? Like, do we have the moral high ground here? Right. So I mean, whatever it's, it's a rabbit hole, you know, a real can of worms here, but yeah. uh, to which there, there are no good answers, but the conversations are important. And I think Colin, you, you've hit on this repeatedly in this conversation of the, the know-it-alls, whether they are on Twitter or in our government, I think that, or really just like the hubris of the United States in general, is an issue. And uh, I think that's a, a, a good lesson to kind of check ourselves and, and maybe humble ourselves. Um, we should be humbled after everything that's happened in the last 20 years and certainly in the last week. Yeah. And I think having these kind of conversations with dissenting points of view and is, is the most important thing. And I think it's increasingly infrequent uh, to have different perspectives brought to the same table. And you may not come to any resolution, which I don't think we came to any resolutions here, but Discussing and expanding your your horizons a little bit is 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 what is needed for any sort of personal growth. Beautiful. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, like I, this was great for me, and uh, you know, hopefully, you know, great for Ricky and, and and you as well. But we really appreciate your perspective. That that was like really valuable. Yeah, definitely, absolutely. Yeah, Thanks for having me, and uh, and uh, hopefully, uh, we'll we'll have uh, some some good news in the future to discuss. <laughs> We'd love that. <laughs> that would be great. Definitely. All right, dude. Well, uh, we'll catch you soon. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. See ya. Well, that was a... Um... Definitely interesting, certainly heavy, uh, very important conversation. I think we had just obviously like, like many of the topics we try and tackle, there's just a ton 
to uh to dig in there but um yeah where do you want to start it was it was great colin was phenomenal even better like i i hoped he would be good but he provides such a good perspective not only as uh you know someone that's really incredibly educated and well-spoken but someone that had that veteran's perspective and also had been as you mentioned like per- personally touched by 9-11 that was uh, really great to have his perspective i thought the conversation was great i mean i think the biggest thing that i took away here and this is very much in contrast to so much of what I've seen on social media or even in you know newspaper headlines where there's, there's so much, there's been so much finger pointing and like the Biden administration did this wrong, but no, it's actually the Trump administration's fault. But like, look, the Obama administration didn't do what they said they were going to do, but it's really the Bush administration's fault for getting in there in the first place, right? And it's, all of those things are true. And we talked about that, but also like, it's it was a no-win situation from the start right and it was this it was the tragic uh terrorist events of the terrorist attacks of, of september 11th mandated a response the response as we mentioned was overwhelmingly popular it was 98-0 in the senate i think like 240 to 1 in the house and across like the american populace this was good it became clear fairly quickly um that this was going to be far more complicated than perhaps anybody an- anticipated um, or if they did anticipate it like there was not a great plan to get us out of it and blame is to be shared for everybody for sure and everyone should take their share of the blame right like the, the Biden administration needs to own th- this pullout because the, this, this disaster of a pullout but it, it, it is fair to say that they were handed like a really difficult deal that the Trump administration put them in and that the Obama administration failed to get out of it themselves and that the Bush administration got in and couldn't get out right like all of those things are true but I think Colin did a really good job of just being like <laughs> especially from his examples experiences on the ground there of just being like look like this was just, it, it, it's, there's, there's no right answer. There's no good solution here. And that, that's, it's really difficult to acknowledge that because it's like, we're trying to be solutions oriented, right? Like we want to come up with, let, let, how could we have done things differently? What could we still do differently to, to solve the situation? What could we do differently in the future? Where it's like, you know, there, we could have done things better for sure, but this, <laughs> there's sometimes like it, you have to understand that, there is no answer and that's really difficult yeah it's it's one of those things i think we come back to a little bit when we talk about consensus and that yeah there was an overwhelming consensus to send us into afghanistan to fight terrorism which you know we we spoke at length in the conversation about the hubris but but maybe the 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 biggest thing is that how the idea that we could fight terrorism with guns and bombs in a country that we didn't know against people that we didn't understand without really even asking ourselves, like, what was the cause or what was, you know, you know, we had this idea that, all right, if we get Osama bin Laden and if we route Al Qaeda or something, then, you know, we'll have won, we'll have beat terrorism, but largely in the way that communism was an idea, terrorism is sort of a a collection of beliefs that were anti-American, but we didn't understand them. We didn't spend any time to understand them. So it was like, we were going to fight this idea in a foreign place. And, you know, we almost, we almost set out there to do something that just couldn't ever be done. And so we, we ended up, you know, you always look at a larger goal and, and come up with intermediary goals to try and achieve, to try and get to that end objective. But I don't think, you know, it's one of those things that we never really 
identified or figured out how we would, you know, or what even we couldn't even define what that end objective was. And I think one of the things that Colin really said that the tragedy at the end was the, you know, the promises to the individual people that we made and that we broke on the way out. And that's, um, I think that's something that is consistently getting lost because Colin did a great job of explaining that the government that we sort of stood up there that is now being overrun by the Taliban, it is not, it was not like this ideal uh, form of democracy that we had planted, like rampant corruption, huge inequalities between those that were able to get access to aid versus, you know, the majority of the people who were not, um, that like, yes, that government is falling, the Taliban is potentially worse or potentially just like a different flavor of, of horrible. Um, and that's, I think, yeah, it, I mean, there's, there's just, just, there's just so much there. I think the, the question I have, I mean, we had tons of questions, but the ones that, that that's burning is like, was our war on terror in general, just the wrong response to, to 9-11? Or what, I mean, yeah, of course, what would be the right response? I don't know. Exactly. Right. But I mean, to be fair, like those are, and this is what I was trying to get at was like, you have to ask the tougher questions. And like, we, we've, we alluded to this back on when we were talking about the pullout originally, I think it was back in episode 25, back in April. And we were saying that like the 9-11 attacks were, you know, in large part a response to like the United States um, occupation of or, or presence in Saudi Arabia, which was in response to the the Gulf, the first Persian Gulf War in the 1990s, right? And then the United, uh, that was the September 11th attacks, the United States gets back in and it's all of these things are, are really tied together. And in the moments, the days, the month, weeks, months after 9-11, I've talked about this before, right? Like you saw the American flags everywhere. It was the greatest sense of like patriotism, at least from my perspective that I had, had felt in my life. And it was like, like we've talked about this, like the Toby Keith songs, right? We'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. Like we, we lit up your skies like the 4th of July, right? And uh, and we we did all of that. But obviously, again, hindsight, 20 years later, it, <laughs> the questions that we needed to ask ourselves, I'm not sure were, were asked and, uh, or at least not widely societally. I'm not saying that they weren't asked at some level of government, but to say like, okay, what's the plan after we get rid of the Taliban? What's the plan after we get rid of Saddam Hussein's government, right? If, if we can agree that generally speaking, those are good things, okay? Like whether or not we should be doing those things, different question. But like, if we agree that we're going to get, that these are evil people and we should, you know, get rid of their governments, then what? And, uh, you know, if the plan existed, <laughs> it wasn't a very good one, <laughs> like, or it didn't work, right? And so I, I don't know. I, I do hope that like we, we ask some of, of the tougher questions of ourselves, you know, as a, as a government, as a society going forward. Um, and I'm not, like I said earlier, I'm not particularly like we don't, but we, ha- we, ha- I mean, we, we have to, like that the world is super complicated and to see it from like Colin said, like a black and white American hubris perspective is, clearly dangerous, dangerous for everybody and has cost the world, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives. Yeah, I I did love kind of how Khan wrapped up the episode and just talking about 
sort of the need for international, like not just U.S. Senate and congressional consensus, but really, if you're going to go through the exercise of uh, removing a government, completely destabilizing a nation, that you need international consensus, this is that there's a humanitarian crisis and there is a reason to do this because beyond like, how do we set up the next government? But, you know, they're going to be refugees. There's going to be, uh, I mean, there's just going to be a lot of unknowns and you need the entire world really to be able to come together and figure out how to create this solution. I tried to throw in a little joke that, uh, that Dave Chappelle made like back in 2001, like, Oh, we got a coalition of the willing, like Djibouti's coming. Japan's sending playstations like that's not enough we really need to be able to 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 as a world like you know establish all right there is a moral imperative that we deal with this issue it can't because you know as i was alluding to in 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 many places you can pick out certain things about countries that like ideally need to be changed obviously we can do that with china but you can really do that in ton in in many different areas, and so if the if the answer is not always like all right, we need to go in there and and remove the government and start all over, then we need to do a better job as an international community coming together and and figuring these figuring out what the solution is. I mean, unfortunately, the UN has no real power, and all of the major nations have veto power, which they use quite frequently to stop any type of, you know, UN resolution, but real, realistically, I think what you said is, is hugely important that we really, really think about, okay, yes, we have the guns, we have the bombs, we can, we can do this to anybody, but then what, but then what? And that's where maybe I am naively a little bit hopeful, where now that the United States is, you know, quote unquote, out of Afghanistan, it's no longer the United States' This mission is no longer the United States' sole problem or, or the sole problem of the United States. Um, I, hopefully, we can, as an international community, acknowledge that the Taliban, certainly as it existed back in the late 90s and probably as it exists today, is a, is a you know, terrorist evil organization that is going to set uh, you know, the Afghan people back, particularly Afghan women and girls, back uh, a, a great deal. And if we can acknowledge that now that the United States is out, you know, maybe we do have China and Russia, like we can in not only the, the Western countries, but we can get on the same page here and really try to exert pressure on that government to, to set up a government, a stable, moderate government. And Colin alluded to it. That's a possibility, right? Like because like he alluded to like the discrepancies within the Taliban, where we can acknowledge that the Taliban is from the United States, a West, Western perspective, is a terrible, evil government, no matter who is leading it. But there are better, you know, or less bad scenarios within that government. And if, if we can come together as an international community, and we have a little bit, there, there were talks, um, like, uh, with including, you know, China and Russia and the United States, like, uh, with the Taliban prior to this week, obviously, uh, <laughs> the success of those talks uh, was not great. But I, I think it would be an opportunity where, like, you know, this is an opportunity for the international community to come together to try to ensure the best possible results, which we know are not going to be good, but the best that we can do for the Afghan people. And so, you know, we'll look at that and we'll, I mean, we'll keep an eye on that over the next few weeks and few months and few years. And I mean, I guess the only the last things I have to say is, 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, Colin says it, it. I think it's the only word really. It's heartbreaking. Um, and uh, you know, the United States' goals, as as flawed as the execution of those goals were, the the goals were really great. All right, like we want to give women and girls more opportunities. We want to in- increase educational opportunities for the country and increase more infrastructure and in small businesses and self sustainability. Again. We, we, we've litigated this enough. We went about it in a really ineffective, poor, um, uh, arrogant manner. But we want those, generally speaking, for everybody in the world. And so the United States, the responsibility, you know, while we've abdicated our responsibility to far too many people in Afghanistan already, the, United, the responsibility of the United States is, is not over with regard to these people. And, and hopefully the United States will continue to play you know, a big role in in trying to ensure the best possible outcomes for the country or for the people of the country, really. Yeah, I, I guess I'll wrap by saying, you know, I think one of our mutually shared uh, uh, initiatives or, or, or policy policies that we you know we both admired was the Marshall Plan in Germany, right? Like after after Hitler and the fall of Nazi Germany. You know, we, you kind of have two avenues that you can take. You continue to cripple the country, sanction them, um, create more instability, more power vacuums, or you can kind of go a different route. Um, and the Marshall Plan was a huge investment program. And obviously, there's a lot of challenges to doing that with the Taliban government still in place. But, you know, Afghanistan is a country that, you know, Colin was talking about its location, certainly strategically located, connecting trade routes from uh, Central Asia into India, China, uh, Pakistan, you know, there, there's certainly some strategic avenues that, that kind of require it to, um, that require a, a lot, you know, the international community can't just like forget about it because of where it is. Um, but it's like biggest export is is opium or poppy. So on its own, it doesn't really have much. So it needs the world as well. And, and as a country, it relies hugely on foreign aid. So if we can, you know, do some combination of ca- carrot and sticks with this Taliban government, um, much like you know you see with the European Union, some of the changes they've tried to bring about um, in Turkey, for instance. You know, not all of those are taking. But there has been some improvement in how uh, Turkey's government is run, some moderate, right, how some of the freedom of the press and things like that, um, because of these economic ties and economic integration, it's coming at a challenging time, right? The world in general has recently moved towards protectionism from an economic perspective. But if I have a reason to hope, and, you know, if, if any of us do, is that, that we can potentially use our, our global economy as a way to lift up some of the basic rights within that country. And maybe it won't look like America. And it, it could still be an okay place for the people of that country to live in. And that's, you know, I think the best we can hope for today. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, 
Need an early morning buzz. 